So I wanted to tell a, a little bit uh, of a story on behalf of my wife, Catherine. When I sent her a text wishing her happy 48th spiritual birthday, she said, oops, I forgot. So my wife became a Christian exactly 48 years ago today. And the story goes something like this. She was 15 years old. She was sitting at the student union on Bowling Green State University campus because she was what they call a townie. Uh, her dad was a professor there, and she lived in the town, so she hung out on campus a lot because, like, that's kind of cool when you're 15 on campus. And a guy named Joe McAuliffe, some of you might know his brother, Terry McAuliffe. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? He was the guy who financed and bankrolled and, uh, the Clintons, and, uh, and he was also the uh, president of the Democratic Party for many years and governor of Virginia, and he'll probably be a Democratic candidate for president uh, someday. In any case, uh, Joe McAuliffe was the pastor of Bowling Green Church. He'd been a hippie, he got saved. He lived uh, at Ray Nethery's great saving farm for about a year and a half. Then he, uh, with Ray's permission, gone back to Bowling Green and started sharing the gospel. So Catherine was sitting in front of the union and Joe McAuliffe walked by with his Bible in his hand and Catherine said hello because they were old friends. And, uh, they used to smoke pot together at rock concerts. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but Joe just said hi and kept walking. And Catherine looked at him. And it's amazing how the Lord works. But uh, she just had the thought, like, something is very different about that guy. And he didn't look any different, except his countenance was so different. So she actually ran after him. And she uh, kind of tapped his shoulder and said, hey. What happened to you? And so he said, do you want to talk about it? She said, sure. So they went in the student union and sat down. He shared the gospel with her for about 20 minutes. And then he said, he prayed um, with her to receive Christ. And her life was totally revolutionized that day. She's walked with the Lord since then. And you know, there's not a lot of people, Ned Berube's one of the few people I know that have, uh, uh, I, I heard one sliver of the gospel and then I, and it totally changed my life. But I want to start tonight by just saying that does happen. In Romans 1, uh, 8, 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Think, listen to that. The power, the gospel, is the dynamite, dunamis, dynamic, kick-butt power of God unto salvation. The gospel is uh, the, the most powerful force in the universe. And one of our problems is that we live in a culture and a time, largely because of the marketing industry, <coughs> where we're word-hardened by word inflation. Now let's talk about what that means. Word-hardened by word inflation. Do you know in financial theory, uh, what in, hopefully you know what inflation is, but inflation is caused by increasing the number of dollars in circulation so that the dollars mean less. Right? That's really what inflation is. Inflation is actually was a thing started by a secret meeting in clandestine ways. 
that included several key leaders of the United States, like J.P. Morgan and uh, I believe Teddy Roosevelt was there and so forth, but they created the, what was called the Federal Reserve Bank and made plans for a paper currency because inflation is actually a way of getting more out of the poor people. It's the cruelest tax of all. And it, so when politicians stand up and say they're going to just tax the real rich and, and so forth, and, and they're not saying we're going to change the Federal Reserve System, they're just lying because most of them know better. They're just saying, you know, it's just, it's just uh, saying whatever it takes to get votes, but it's just BS. But in terms of word inflation, you know, the, the advertising industry has created a culture where Dotson saves. Coke adds life. You know, right? And there's so many stupendous claims about things that we actually begin to get into a, a mindset that doesn't put enough attention on words. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And whoever who believes is a matter of God's choice. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. God's job is to have, you know, a guy like Ned Barubi or a lady like Catherine Weiss hear 20 minutes of the gospel and it changed her life. She's walked with God you know, since then. So that's what I kind of wanted to start with tonight is just ask God to help you think about the fact that um, Jesus said, the words I speak to you are spirit and life. Wow. Like if, if we weren't so word hard, the words I speak to you are spirit and life. You know, like, I love those letter, red letter Bibles, but of course, they're a little bit of a heresy because actually, Jesus is the Word of God, and everything in the Bible is the, is the Word of God. So, uh, nevertheless, I still like the red letter Bibles. But uh, the words Jesus speaks are spirit and life. Uh, the Word of God is like a hammer. Someone look that one up. That's in Jeremiah. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, you're sure. Like a hammer that breaks the rock. I, I used to, there's a very famous Christian oratorio that I once sang in a church choir. It's not his word like a fire. Do you know that one, Christian? <laughs> and like a hammer that break hit the rock, that break hit the rock into peace. It's, uh, <laughs> It's a great one. I, I don't know if it's hand or What's that? Apparently in Jeremiah 23, 29. Yeah, go ahead and read it. I was thinking of Jeremiah. Um, so this is the ESV. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. Jeremiah, what is it, 33, 29? 23, 29. 23, 29. Is not his word like a fire. Do you guys know that one? <laughs> I don't know. Somebody should find out for me by next week. Is that Handel or who who wrote that one? But uh, might have been Vivaldi. I don't know. But it's uh, it was it's a fantastic song. All right, let's move on. 
So I guess uh, that leads into really tonight, I hope we get into, I'm kind of giving us the rationale for why we want to do this uh, Operation Re Reconciliation, Fish, Becoming Fishers of Men program. But the bottom line is there's a necessity for proclamation evangelism. So if, uh, how many people went through the book Evangelism as a Lifestyle this summer? With uh, who was leading that group? Was that you, Daniel, or was Josiah, it Josiah? Josiah. Who went, so you went through with John and the who else? I did. John, Luke, Deanna, Melody. Okay. So if you remember, that book has uh, a discussion about two kinds of evangelism, and you need to ask the Lord to deliver you from contemporary thinking. <laughs> and uh, one such contemporary thinking is this either-or thing. So you hear Christians all the time say, we want to, uh, to do, you know, what, what I just want to do is what's called lifestyle evangelism. You know, we have a Christian community. We do such a good job raising our kids. And we're better students. And, and uh, you know, like our lawn doesn't look that bad. Oh, well, I'm failing there. But, uh, <laughs> or whatever. And we hope people will go like, wow, you guys got it all together. Take me to your leader. <laughs> but but uh, it doesn't always work like that. So we'll get into that tonight. Um, I think that's... Isn't that one of the points tonight? Yeah, that's one of the points tonight. There we go. So we'll get into that. Um, all right, so this... Uh, this message is sort of heavy on titles at the beginning. So one title is Operation Reconciliation. Hopefully you recognize that out of 2 Corinthians 5, that God has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation, right? So becoming fishers of, effective fishers of men, of course, several of the Gospels uh, address that, but especially Luke chapter 5. Luke, I would just encourage you to put in your notes somewhere. If Luke chapter 5 isn't like sacred ground to you where you take off your shoes, you're missing out. <laughs> Luke 5 gives us uh, the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi, who becomes Matthew, uh, in more detail than any other place in the Gospels. And uh, in, in it, Jesus says, if you follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. And... Uh, so one of the things we need to understand is if we're not becoming a fisher of men, um, then you're not really following Jesus. And so the reason I have this becoming effective fishers of men to bear fruit that remains, um, I learned a big lesson once. A lot of you know that um, I've had four... Uh, very sad funerals in my life, and uh, one of which was last summer with uh, my, my best Christian friend after I became a Christian named Mike Manahan. And, uh, Deanna happened to be there the day I found out he was really sick. But uh, Mike uh, went out west one summer to work in Yosemite Park, and um, uh, he... he he was in this program, and he met this guy, and the guy uh, 
decided to come back to Bowling Green to be part of the church because he became kind of very codependent on clingy to Mike and stuff, and so that was an issue we had to work on. But uh, one time, that particular guy, who wasn't very far along yet in the Lord, was uh, in our apartment. There was like a guest there, and I was in my room studying, and I decided not to intervene. But they got into a big argument about the gospel, and it wasn't a very productive way to, to try to share the gospel. And what became clear to me was uh, there was all kind of wrong motivations and attitude working inside the guy's spirit. So one of the things you have to really kind of understand is when you, if Jesus called you to be a fisher of men, um, it, just in the natural, if someone was a fisherman and they didn't become very good at it, that would be a little problem, wouldn't it? Especially if they were in a situation like J Peter, Andrew, James, and John, where their family's livelihood depended on their effectiveness. That's why the, the story is actually so powerful. When, when they fished all night and didn't catch anything, they were experts. That kind of thing didn't happen to them very often. This, this was a sovereign setup. And then Jesus tells them to put down their nets and they get so many fish they have to call the other boats for help because they're sinking. They can't, they can't get them all in the boat. You know, can you imagine if there was such a move of God that we called the other churches to help us disciple the people because we, we don't have enough people to help get, bring all these people in? That, that'd be something, right? You know, since when you bring, catch a lot of fish, you've got to clean them. So you got to have a lot of people around. If you're if you catch enough fish, you need a lot of help cleaning the fish, right? You might not be able to get to all of them before they start stinking. You know, like with Lazarus, and after four days, he, there will be, he's stinking. Uh, so that's King James. So, uh, so when you're talking about bearing fruit or being a fisher of men, the key issue begins to be, can you catch any fish? And I submit to you that some people have a special giftedness in it, but I believe every Christian can get to the point where they regularly catch fish. You know, some people are bringing in eight and ten people at a time, but I think everybody should be bringing in one or so two people a year. I think God put, puts more doors in front of you than you know. One of my famous door stories, I was just on the phone with my good friend Larry Trumbach today. And when Larry and I moved down from Bowling Green, part of it was, frankly, the elders of the Bowling Green Church had given up on him a little, and he had a job offer. And so um, I kind of got in Larry's face and said, you have 14 subscriptions to sports magazines and you spend three or four hours a day reading your sports magazines and watching your sports shows and you don't even know the scriptures. Uh, today, Larry has read the whole Bible once a year for over 30 straight years now. Uh, and uh, But early on, he canceled all his sports subscriptions so he could read the Bible more, which was a good step. But then, of course, there's doing this step and then really having your heart change. So Larry would go down to the convenience stores and just buy the sports magazines for, for a little bit more than he would have got them for if he had a, still had a subscription. And, uh, but Larry's a very loving you know, guy, and so uh, he always went to the same convenience store, and the same young lady always waited on him. So 
One day she said, what is it with you? She goes, uh, everyone else treats me nasty and as rude and everything. And you're always happy and you always ask me, like, how's my day going? And you didn't ask me about my kid and, and all this. Why are you so loving and nice and happy all the time? And Larry said, well, I guess I'm just a happy kind of guy. And then he left. <laughs> and when he, when he told me that later that day, I'm like, Larry, if God was ever opening up a door to tell someone about Jesus, that was probably it. And um, so I always used to love to tease Larry about that one. All right. So let's get into it. Uh, incorporating productive strategies of evangelism into the daily life of the church, all these different. Uh, and then finally, pr uh, prioritizing Christ's last objective. All of these are the title. <laughs> they all mean the same thing. So the first question is, why should we study the Bible's approach to evangelism and pre prepare and train accordingly? And I would say it's because if, if you're not becoming effective at fishing for men, that's problematic. Uh, now, that should be measured on both a corporate level, like in other words, is the church getting good at that? Because it takes a team to lead people to Christ. We all know that, hopefully, that those of you who work in, in you know, the various situations to get, you know, we talk over, what about this person? Is anybody befriending them? Is anybody helping this person? Is anybody praying for this person? So forth. That's part of being a team, right? But also you have to kind of like say, Lord, are you help, help me grow in my, my ability to, to uh, you know, to reel somebody in. Because there's skill in it, right? Now you, you know, I won't bore you with my usual fishing story about how I couldn't do it at first. Um, so let's start with saying this: seven reasons for this program. Number one, the kingdom of God is the central theme in Scripture. And in Colossians 1.13... <coughs> Paul says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and that's a kingdom word, by the way. Same root word as kingdom. Domain, kingdom, same, same root word, right? He rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. What, and a kingdom is a place where a king reigns. So a kingdom of darkness would be a place where darkness reigns, where people are lost, where people are blind. I don't know about you, but I have various little night lights throughout my house because I don't actually like a lot of light because it, you know it's too hard on the eyes. But I always want to be able to see just enough to go out, you know, walk around the house at three in the morning, making my wife's tea or whatever I'm doing at three in the morning. But uh, <laughs> so um, the, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the sun he loves, and. Uh, I decided to uh, leave that one in the Holman Christian Standard Bible because I, I like that translation. Uh, but this is the essence of what it means to be converted to Christ. To, you know, we have reduced in America uh, evangelism to getting someone to pray a certain prayer. You know, that Follow Me book that we've been using. Is that the one we're doing right now? What's his name? Rick? David Platt? Is it? You know, he addresses that a lot. Like, we have this thing... Pray to ask Jesus into your heart, which is nowhere in the Bible, right? But that's become the watchword. 
But what Jesus really wants us to do is make disciples, and the measure is, were they delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred in the kingdom of his beloved son? And that should involve some powerful things like, were their addictions set free? How about fears? How about social skills? Do you know that Jesus wants to change your social skills for the better? And so that whatever your particular issues or ministry is, you're more effective at it. If you're not changing people's minds, you, you're, you, you better rethink what you're doing. If you can't say, these 50 people have totally changed their mind, then we're probably not being effective. So, um, does that make sense? Now, uh, somebody get Acts 28.31, somebody gets Matthew 4.17, and someone get Acts 1.3, and just yell out to me when you got them, because I'm going to keep pressing on. Uh, the kingdom of God, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, most people in our culture think that has something to do with heaven. That has nothing to do with heaven. Yeah, go ahead. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many fruits, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Right, so again, Jesus has, is, is resurrected from the dead. He appears to the disciples about 40 days. If, you're, if you are the most intense person that, that ever lived about changing the whole world, and you spent three and a half years investing in a team of people that are going to do it after you leave, do you think you would be talking about trivial things for the last 40 days? Like, I sure like jelly donuts. <laughs> right? I don't think so, Tim. <laughs> right? So, I, you know, Jesus, what did Jesus speak about for the 40 days? The kingdom of God. Uh, somebody got one of the other ones? Matthew 4, 7, 10. Anybody got it? Go ahead. So the first thing Jesus says and the last thing Jesus says is about the kingdom of God. Right? Has anyone got Paul X 2831? Yeah. Go ahead, read it. Um, read verse 32. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense, this is Paul, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. So Paul, think about this. This, this is, uh, Paul wrote the Philippian letter that we talked about earlier, Philippians 2.27. One, he was in jail. And when he was in a Roman jail, that means he was chained all 24-7, and the only thing that changed was which guards he was chained to. Do you think that'd be somewhat inconvenient? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't like to have Bible studies if my chair isn't quite right and the air conditioning isn't quite right and, you know, I don't have my iced tea and, and then, you know, Stephen has repacked my, you know, thing with all the Bible studies in it, and, you know, and all that, you know, like I like everything to be just nice when we have our Bible studies, right? You know, Paul's like pro proclaiming the, the kingdom of God and preaching the Lord Jesus Christ unhindered and he's sitting on cold stones, and there's rats. 
I'm not that thrilled with rats myself. And I really don't like uh, cockroaches that much. <laughs> uh, even though there is a good Mexican song called La Cucaracha. I used to play on the piano when I was a kid. That was about the only thing I ever liked about cockroaches. But uh, <laughs> I think it was. I probably was. I don't know that movie. But I used to play it on the piano when I was a kid. That's all I know. Yeah, La Cucaracha. Yeah, that's from I didn't know Bugs Life, but is that a mod that's a more modern movie than? Is it? Buzz Lightyear was like the first animated movie. Oh. I didn't know that. Anyway. That's different I'm such a pop culture. All right. So, next point under the kingdom is that the kingdom growth glorifies the king. You know, Proverbs, uh, I, again, I, I decided to keep the Holman Christian Standard Bible. This When I did this teaching years ago, I was in a checking out the Holman Christian Standard Bible because it was new phase. And so, uh, but I like the, you know, because uh, I think I think New King James or New American Standard says something like a king's glory is in a dearth of people, which means a lot of people. But the Holman's Christian Standard Bible is pretty, pretty uh, easy in, in English to understand in this particular passage. A large population is a king's splendor. Some translations say glory. But a shortage of people is a ruler's devastation. Do you know that God actually has, like, part of how he shows his glory is Isaiah 9 says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. Which makes me think, what the heck ever happened that we got dispensational premillennialism that things are going to get darker and darker, and will there be faith in the earth? And only a few Christians will be hiding in the corner, being faithful before Jesus comes back. And, and, and of course, our church is the ones that got it right, our, our 17 people. You know, you, know, the, you know what? The church has grown. Do you realize that on, when the day Jesus rose, there were 120 people cowering in an upper room? By the first Easter, there were... Uh, somewhere between five or 10,000 converts. In 2004, most estimates are that Christianity surpassed Islam as the largest religion in the world, and it's growing exponentially. They say in communist China, around 30,000 people a day come to Christ. Of course, they got a lot of people. <laughs> so, you know, there shall be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. In Africa, in year 1900, estimates are that there were somewhere between 4 and 10 million Christians. Today, estimates are 480,000 to 500,000 Christians. That's a lot of growth. I would say, like, if Daniel, if we have growth like that, you're going to have to work on getting us a new building. Yeah, we might... Oh, 480 to 500 million. I didn't say million. 480. That's a lot. <laughs> well, that we still need a new building with 480. <laughs> but, or, or four services. <laughs> we can sit. We can sit about 155 building in our building. So we could have three or four meetings. Uh, now, you want to hear something bizarre? A lot of people don't know the background in this statistic. 
Do you know that in Africa in 2004, or I'm sorry, in 1900, where there was 4 million to 10 million uh, Christians, there were only 178 million people on the whole continent. Today, there's a billion people on the continent. So Christianity has grown in 1900 from 2% of the population to half the population. That's pretty good. That's not happening in America. But it is happening in so many places in the world. So the king's glory is in a, you know, like a lot of people. Kingdom growth, going, proclaiming, conversion, deliverance, baptisms, disciple-making, body life, equipping, maturing, sending, multiplying, etc. is like what we're supposed to be about. And so we need to cry out to God, help us get there. We're like, you know, we think of certain people in our fellowship is pretty good at evangelism. Nobody is anywhere near where God wants us to be. None of us. Right? We all have some growing to do in this area. And we need to grow as a church in this area. Because those are the things that were that the kingdom's supposed to be about. Do you know that most of you know this because uh, most of you are, you can look around and see the ages. Starting around when you're 14, you know, if you don't want to have kids, you've got to do certain things about them. <laughs> like wait till you get married and <laughs> things like that. I mean, otherwise you're going to have kids. You know, I have uh, a little fish tank that uh, I grow the babies up in. But I haven't taken care of the fish tank with the babies in for quite a few months now. So now there's lots of grown-up fish that have had babies, and their babies have had babies. <laughs> and there's all sorts of generations going on in here. And, <laughs> right? Because that's what happens. If there's, if there's life, there's babies. I want you to hear that. Think about great... Close your eyes and think about worshiping at Grace Christian Fellowship. We have such sweet worship. If there's life, there's babies. Now we're not doing too bad in the natural, I, from what I can see. <laughs> I'm not, you know, like one of my gifts of discernment is I have this keen sense for the obvious. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, I can see like, you know, Daniel Gray running around and Lily and so forth. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we got babies. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, uh, but do you know, but in, in the natural is the same as the spiritual. First, the natural, then the spiritual. If we're starting to hit spiritual puberty, there should be a problem with babies. <coughs> Isn't that wild? And I'm not saying that to condemn us. Don't don't get beat up on yourself when you hear something like that. Ask God, take us there. God doesn't ever tell you stuff like that to uh, to condemn you nor to tease you. Like you have these desires in the Lord just so you can be frustrated. No, He doesn't do that. He does it to lead your study. He does it to cause you to think uh, maybe I should have somebody coach me on my social skills. Right. Uh, because sometimes what stands between certain zealous people and fruitfulness is they're not the you know they're 
their message is too harsh or, or too uninformed or what have you. Right? Everybody tracking with me? Is this, is this okay? Um, last point under the first point of the, my seven reasons the kingdom of God, A, B, C. C is Christ-centered obedience. And I want to talk about that for a minute. Romans 1 and Romans 15, Paul uses the phrase that he was given grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. We have divorced faith in our country in terms of Christianity from obedience. We actually think we can believe in Jesus and not necessarily follow Jesus in obedience, but that's not biblical faith. That's actually just an unreality, a deception, that's just foolishness. And it's very rampant in our Christianity today, right? So um, I wanted to tell you a little story about my own journey. As a young baby Christian, a lot of you know that my Christian life started with my spirit started leaving my body and going to hell. And I struggled with that for over a couple of years. But because of it, hell was very real to me. So real that I used to stand in the center of Bowling Green State University campus, and I used to stand on this little platform and watch the people go by, and I used to cry. And I used to say, Lord, they don't know you. They don't know they're, they're, they're chasing their girlfriends, their careers, and so forth. Uh, and, and it's all a waste. And someday they're going to die and they're going to stand before you. And it's all about what you do with Jesus. It's all about heaven and hell. It, the stakes of life are so powerful, so important. And I, it, I didn't really understand things yet, so I'd even argue with the Lord, this isn't fair. This is too much. And so what I didn't know yet, of course, is God doesn't put that kind of stuff in your spirit to, to frustrate you, but to motivate you to keep moving toward it until, until that becomes more and more of a reality for you. And I want us all to consider that God wants us to keep moving forward like lots of people in this room actually hope to bear more fruit. There's lots of people who actually, I, I don't want to show hands. I just want you to think about it. I know a lot of you share your heart with me on various levels, right? And I know there's lots of people in this room that really, really, really cry over the lost. Right? And, uh, and, and you're actually quite motivated over that. And I want to say to you that God doesn't give you that to frustrate you or to tease you, but he does give it to you to guide you to find, because he wants you to go on a journey to find that with him. And that journey may take many years, but there should be many things you consider, like would memorizing lots of scriptures help? Would learning to walk more in the power of the Spirit help? Would better social skills help? Uh, would a would a haircut help? <laughs> you know, like would a beard help? <laughs> no, a beard would not help. <laughs> I can honestly say for this young ladies in the room that beard won't help. But for some of you guys, maybe a bird would help. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus saves. Jesus shaves. Jesus shaves. Right. That's a great one. 
So anyway, um, so when I was a young Christian, I had a lot of compassion for the lost. But I was actually just getting, you know, born again, baptized in the Spirit, starting to read, read the Bible, when I understood, Lord, that's the wrong motivation as my first motivation to be on fire for you and to be wanting to build evangelistic style churches. From day one, I've always wanted to build Christian communities that were evangelistic, right? But the truth of the matter is that has to be a secondary motivation. The number one motivation has to be the fact that we love God and he commands it. Did everybody get that? That's really kind of important distinction. So that's why I have it in the notes. You know, we have to ask God to take us to a place where our desire to proclaim the gospel, to, to evangelize, to lead people is because of our love for him and obedience. Did everyone get that? That's kind of an important point. I, you know what? I There's no clock back there. We need a clock back there. Do you think Wright State would put a clock back there for us? <laughs> if we asked him. Uh, I should end by nine, probably. Right. Great if you want, so we can bring like a little clock. Yeah, I actually would love that actually, because <laughs> that it helps me stay on track. All right, let's go to number two point. We're not going to get through all seven tonight. The second point of why we need to become effective fishers of men and and do this uh, operation reconciliation and all this kind of stuff is. Uh, because of the contemporary crisis in evangelical Christianity, right? So, I don't know if most of you know, know this, but in the late 90s through about 2010, the, there's always uh, little movements in evangelical Christianity. And if you know what you're looking for, say on Amazon Books and stuff, you can find out what they are based on all the books that are coming out on that subject. So the fastest growing genre of books in the late 90s and in the 2000 to 2010 was on the great crisis in evangelical Christianity because it's kind of fallen apart on a lot of levels. And a lot of pastors see it and recognize it, right? So that's kind of important. You know, these are statistics from years ago, but at that time, uh, it said that I think these I probably did this around 2012 or so if I if I remember. Uh, 37,000 churches closed their doors in the United States in the last 10 years. 2,765 2, members dropped out each year. 18,000 ministers leave the ministry annually. Only 2.2% of churches in America are growing by conversion evangelism. 95% of the growth in the mega churches is from what they call transfer growth. Now, Stephen doesn't like working with my fish as much as I make him, but he's very familiar with transfer growth because I say, Stephen, take uh, all the guppies that have grown up over here and put them in the big tanks. And, that, and so all of a sudden you look at the 65-gallon tank and it's got like 30 new members. <laughs> but they weren't, they, didn't, they weren't born yesterday. 
they were transferred from one tank to another. And uh, uh, there's all kind of talk and discussion about these churches that are growing. But there's organizations, including Gallup, who's the political organization, but it happens to be a, a bunch of Christians that run it, and Barna, and some of you know that Barna publishes an annual report on the state of the church in America today. And uh, Bar this is from Barna's annual report on the church today. 95% of churches that are growing are just growing by stealing the members of, a, of the other churches. Does that, you understand what I'm saying? That means they're not actually growing by people coming to Christ. And even in our own church, I would say there's a few guys like John Bradbury who weren't Christians at all. Uh, there's lots of guys like Stephen, and I won't name anyone else in this room, but there's other people in this room that, you know, when I when, when you first started coming to our church, frankly, it was quite doubtful whether you were actually really a Christian, and uh, now it's much less doubtful. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, but the truth is... Um, we need, you know, we need to better than transfer growth. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I one reason I love John Bradbury so much is because when I first met him, he said two things. He goes, I don't know if I believe in God. He goes, I only bet, I, I, I think I've been to a church once or twice in my whole life. And uh, can you work with me if I really tell you the truth about what I'm really living like? <laughs> And his number one issue was, I keep getting drunk and beating people up <laughs> and going to jail. You think you can work with that? I said, been there. Uh, except I was such a wimp, I got drunk and other people beat me up. <laughs> so, uh, but it's sort of the same thing. <laughs> so, um, uh, it was not really. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was just a joke. Uh, if it's over the other pounds of it, then I would, would get it. <laughs> gotcha. All right, so um, so the roots of the problem. Many informed commentators know that the issues are, number one, undermining the authority of Scripture, but, you know, most people also understand in the modernist liberal paradigm that we talk a lot about in our church that the liberal side of things undermines the authority of Scripture, right? We all know that part of it, and that might apply to things like the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Episcopalian Church, the churches that are modernist in the sense of no miracles, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin, Jesus didn't really heal raise Lazarus from the dead, and there's lots of churches like that today. But then there's the f more fundamentalist conservative churches who have just as big a deals because of what we would call reductionist Christianity. So one of the things I would that we're going to try to teach during this series a little bit is what do we mean by reductionist Christianity? So hopefully you might, like, there's people in this room that would understand this, and there's people that in this room that wouldn't if I say a lot of evangelical Christianity is neo-Gnostic. Some people would be like, what does that mean? And other people would be like, totally understand what that means. But you actually do need to know why, that that's the case. 
Uh, evangelical Christianity has become legalistic, but that legalism actually grows out of a philosophy called antinomianism. And actually, you need to know why if you're going to be fruitful. Do you know that most mega churches today um, are not very legalistic? But they didn't get there by understanding theology. They got there by an instinct that said performance-based, guilt-trip, shame-based legalism is unhealthy, which is correct. But the, the analysis needs to be much deeper than that if you're, gonna, if you're going to avoid it. So you won't, because what happens in that, you won't hear anything ever unhealthy but you also won't get the help you need to get to get your life together. Is that everyone's following that? And so we're going to look at that a little bit in this series. Um, you won't, uh, you know, what what God wants you, you to be able to do is God wants you to be able to walk somebody all the way through to a healthy marriage, a healthy vocation, good good social skills, all kind of things like that. And uh, we can. Um, I would think of, of, of one of, of the reasons for of the theory of, of the reduction of what he has. use said um, um, of the of the churches that's that's stealing uh, uh, um, um, other of the churches members but it really isn't of the It doesn't really add any new people to the kingdom of God. It's just transfer growth, right? So let's uh, let's if you would hold your comments till we get to the end, because I only have a little bit of time to get through this outline, and and then we can talk for an hour if you want. Um. So, second reason for is that the anti-neutral, supernatural, natural-minded cessationist Christianity. I wish I I'm kind of off my train of thought now, but. Um, Modern approaches to the gospel. Just the whole idea, there's a saying that I would love all of you to memorize, that we want to move from a decision-based model of evangelism to a disciple-making model of evangelism. Everybody in Grace Christian Fellowship should memorize that. Why? Because the modern approach is to try and get a decision. But there's nothing like that in the Bible. If someone doesn't become a 
transferred from one kingdom to another following the lordship of Christ and so forth. We've actually accomplished nothing except, you know, there's some victory in the sense that, you know, Paul said, I'll rejoice that the gospel got preached, whether it was preached in pretense or in truth. So, I mean, if you get to make a clear presentation of the gospel to someone, that's a good thing. And the Lord will be Lord of what happens with that. But what we should ultimately be working for is that people would become disciples of Christ, right? Everyone follow me there? Um, so I guess I'll just go through th points three and four. Yeah, and we'll stop there for tonight. So, because some of this everybody in our church hopefully knows already, and, and so um, that fishing is a primary priority of following Jesus. We all know that. Uh, I have Mark's version of it there, but Luke 5, 1 through 11, down at the end of the paragraph there, would be worth your studying if you haven't. After the Matthew 4, 17, that I think Morgan read to us, that Jesus began to proclaim the gospel of God. Matthew's version in verse uh, verse seven. More Matthew's version in, in chapter four seventeen again <coughs> says that Jesus, from starting from there, began to proclaim the kingdom of God. But then verses eighteen and twenty two tell us about his calling uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And Matthew doesn't give us as much detail on his calling of the first disciples as say Luke does. Uh, in Mark. You know, it talks about how Jesus was going by the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't give us as much detail as Luke either, but at least tells us that Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Um, and so that's something, All you know, three of the synoptic gospels cover that. And that's one way God kind of helps us know that something's important because, again, three of the gospel writers emphasize that. So it wasn't just something that's a side point, is what I'm saying. Uh, lastly, uh, Christ's last objective. Most of us know that one of the goals of being a Christian is to make Jesus Lord. And, um, you know, if, if I worked for a company that Melody was the boss and I was the employee, like one of the goals would be that I do what Melody says, right? <laughs> you know? You know, like she might say, well, I told you to make the French fries and you didn't make any French fries. And Stephen Leopold was very disappointed because there was no French fries. <laughs> so uh, then so I'd have to say, I'm sorry, Melody. Next time you tell me to make the French fries, I'll make French fries, right? So, um, you, you know, we all know that Matthew 28, the Gospel of Matthew ends with verses 18 through 20, 20 telling us to go make disciples of all age, of all men. And there could be no possible interpretation of what a disciple is than to, to study what Jesus did with the 12. You know, there's some very famous books, if you ever want to find them in Christian, Christian history, ones by a guy named A.B. Bruce. It's called The Training of the Twelve. And it's a study. Uh, it sounds like Jeff read that. He was not. Have you read that one? No, I thought maybe you read that one. Uh, kind of not, but you've heard of it, maybe. Uh, it's an old book. It's a way. It, it's old. It's old like us, Jeff. It's a lot older than us, actually. Um, 
And I, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if it's even still available on Amazon or anything, because I think it's from the 1800s, if I remember. It's been a long time since I read that one. Um, but it's a study of how Jesus, it's kind of like Robert Coleman's The Master Plan of Evangelism, uh, except it's a little bit more detailed on focusing on what Jesus did with the 12. The point is that Jesus' last commandment, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when Daniel Williams is going to the grocery store and Christiana says, don't forget to get, to get the whatever that he's not supposed to forget to get. Uh, barbecue sauce, whatever, something, you know. Um, you, you know, you don't, you don't uh, forget the last command, right? So that's probably enough for tonight. Um, that's kind of uh, what, you know, what we're hoping to do. There will eventually be a sign-up sheet. And by January, I want to have us in a place where all the leaders of, of the campus ministry can go out sharing the gospel. If you're not officially one of the 10 or so leaders we met with Friday night, um, then it's a little more optional for you. But the sign-up sheet will be like, yeah, I'm willing to go out sharing the gospel one night a week. So part of this program is designed to have a one night a week where you pray for an hour and then you go sharing for a couple hours. And so it's a pretty big commitment. But you do that like every Tuesday. And Daniel and, and Stephen are putting together like a map of all the apartments. And so each team will be in charge of this apartment complex or what have you. And, uh, you know, hopefully, like a lot of you know that Catherine Weiss shared the gospel with Pat and Darlene Pringer. Some of you know who they are. Uh, they... Uh, Deanna's parents know who they are. Deanna knows who they are. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, there's lots of stories of people that we've gone out knocking on doors, and that's how they got led to Christ. Uh, proclamation evangelism like that doesn't usually yield a lot of fruit at first. Some, some people are more gifted at it than others. Uh, some people persevere in it long enough that they start getting good at it. Some people are good right off the bat, but uh, sometimes it's just the grace of God that this person is hungry. And you just happen to, by God's sovereign grace, a knock on a door of somebody he's drawing into his kingdom. You know, I'll never, uh, might as well end with a story. We were knocking on doors in Offenhauer Tower one night, which is a big dorm in Bowling Green. And I, the, my team was in charge of those of those two dorms. They were called Tower Offenhauer Towers. It was two 10-story dorms next to each other. And uh, in a little city like Bowling Green, 10 story buildings are towers. <laughs> Not New York City, but uh, it's all relative to where the towers are, I guess. But uh, uh, we had like, probably the first evening in the history of going out, my, my history of going out knocking on doors, that no one invited us in to share the gospel. And we, our two hours were up, and we were pretty discouraged, and we were about to go home. And I remembered my old sales training, and I'm like, we got to knock on one more door. <laughs> you just have to knock on one more door. So we did. And this guy named Eric Ryan invited us in. And he had his girlfriend, whose name was Pam Kibbe, in there. So we started talking about the gospel, and I'm like, you know, asking him his, what he knows about Christianity. He goes, well, my sister, she's a, she's a charismatic Christian. You ever heard of that? And I said, I, I think so, <laughs> possibly, you know, and uh, he goes, well, I've been thinking about becoming one, but I just haven't done it yet. I said, hmm, that's a good start. 
And uh, so we shared with him and back and forth and took him through a lot of scriptures for half an hour, 45 minutes. And then his girlfriend was not saying much. She was just uh, listening. And so finally I said, so Pam, what do you think about all this stuff? And she goes, well, I've been thinking about becoming a Christian, but I've been kind of waiting to see what Eric does first. <laughs> and uh, within about three weeks, both of them had become a Christian. They were very involved in the fellowship, the church. They were growing uh, oh, one wild twist of events is two or three months later, she dropped him because <laughs> she thought he wasn't growing enough in the Lord. <laughs> and uh, now they're actually both married to different people, and she's the head of the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Bowling Green, and, and they're both very fruitful Christians. In fact, there's a lot of uh, parts of my house that Eric built. But uh, so, uh, so, you know, God does give you fruit when you go. If it, that's what we're going to look at next week when we flip the page and go to Romans 10 and talk about the necessity of proclamation evangelism. But if we go, uh, sometimes God will bring you to someone that he ordained you to go to. I'll tell one more story along that line. In the same Offenhauer Towers, we knocked on the door of a guy named Randy Harris. And Randy Harris actually said, uh, you know, not only did he tell us to come in, but he said, I've been praying that some Christians would knock on my door because I prayed with this guy named Pat Robertson on television last night to receive Christ. And I figured I better find some Christians to grow. And uh, Randy Harris had very bad Tourette's syndrome. He used to shake, jerk, snort, every kind of thing. And one night, one day in church, the power of the Holy Spirit was very strong. And we ended up praying for deliverance for him, and he's never had a symptom of Tourette's syndrome since then. So and that, was, that was over 40 years ago. 